Welcome to Get After It PDX, a down-to-earth podcast featuring honest conversations with inspiring people in the creative hotbed of Portland, Oregon. Recorded live and on location in Portland, let's welcome the co-founder of Y-East Wolfpack and the host of Get After It PDX, Willie McBride. Hey folks, a quick note before we get started. The Get After It PDX podcast is brought to you by the support of our friends at the Aimsure Distilling Company, a new distillery focused on bringing people together through great flavors and a warm environment. They love the way spirits taste, but more importantly, they love what they do. Spirits bring people together to make memories, build bridges, and crystallize the moment opening up in early 2020 in Northeast Portland. Welcome folks. We are here with Teresa Baker. We are so excited. This is actually the first ever uh, edition of our Get After It PDX and Beyond. The and Beyond part is critical. So that means we are highlighting somebody that does not live in Portland. So we're thrilled that Teresa is our first. Welcome Teresa, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So you are the founder of the African American National Park Experience and the Outdoor CEO Pledge. Correct. I'd like to hear about the, both those things. We'd, okay. we'd all like to hear about both those things. Okay. But first, like we always do, we're going to head back to back in the day, your, your own creation story. So yeah. where did you grow up? And start, start there. Sure. Grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, Richmond, California. Um, went to school there. After school, I hopped right into the real estate field. But my love of the outdoors came into being as a as a youth, just growing up in Richmond and visiting regional parks like Tilden going to Muir Woods in the North Bay and visiting the Presidio of San Francisco and just falling in love with these natural spaces. And I, I think that's where it all began is, you know, just wanting to be outdoors. Who got you out into these spaces? Was it your parents? Was it school? Friends who did these things? Or Yeah, for the most part, it was just community friends because we were... We never wanted to be in the house. You know, our, our, we grew up where our parents were like, nope, can't hang out in the house, you gotta get outdoors. So we did everything from sports to hiking. Um, you know, basketball, football, I was right there in the mix. And we ventured off to Point Richmond where a lot of the hills were. So we would hike. Um, my family had a horse ranch in Salinas. so. Um, we would head to the ranch and, and ride horses for the weekend. So it was just natural, you know, family, friends, and after-school programs that kept us outdoors. What did your folks do? My father worked at a foundry in Parchester, part which is a subdivision of Richmond. Okay. And um, my mom was a homemaker. Um, I grew up in a family of nine. I'm the only girl, I have eight brothers. And yeah, you know, it was just, you know, my dad would always say, don't expect to be treated special because you're the only girl. <laughs> you have to get out there and make your way. Um, do not be intimidated by anyone. So I grew up with that, you know, um, mentality, mentality that, you know, no one's better than me. Um, no matter your position, your title, I'm going to respect you on the same level you respect me. Mm-hmm. And I just grew up with that. So I've never been intimidated to have a conversation with anyone about anything. Um, never been scared to call people out. Um, that's just how I was brought up. Where did you fall in that? Were you the middle, youngest, where in the lineup of all those kids? Oh my God. I had <laughs> um, six older brothers, two younger. Um, and so did, you said you had this horse ranch, the family had a horse yeah. ranch? So that seems sort of unique. Was, was there a horse culture? 
Did your you know, parents ride, or what was, why did you guys have the ranch? No, my parents didn't, but I had an uncle and cousins that did. Okay. And, and that's where the ranch, the horse ranch, came into being. Um, we would go out, you know, a couple of times a month and just ride horses. Um, that's awesome. It, it, it's so strange because now I am totally intimidated by horses. <laughs> I, I, I guess the older I get, uh, I guess fear starts to set in. But as a younger person, I would be right out there on the horses and just, you know, understanding the importance of um, experiences outside of city living. And were there places, outdoor spaces you could go, like, from your house without, like, just on foot, or was it, yeah. what were the modes, like, were, there were people who would, could drive you to Tilden, or? Yeah, Tilden. There was a community around it enough? Yeah, there, we had, I was part of an after-school program, and I went straight from elementary school to this after-school program, and that after-school program had a ranch as well <laughs> so they would take us there on you know field trips and whatnot and we got to see you know everything from pigs to chickens to horses so that ranch experience stayed with me and I just started to develop this sense of um, responsibility for farm life and that stayed with me as well um, but yeah, we could walk to local parks, regional parks. Um, when we wanted to venture over to like near woods or the Presidio, of course, we'd have to, to get a ride. But for the most part, the outdoors was just there for us. Um, sports, everything. Um, yeah. Cool. And when did you first make it to the, the big national parks? like? all the awesome Sierra stuff, Yosemite and... Yeah. Um, did you get out there at an early age or was that later? I did at 13. Nice. I was part of Girls Inc. But back then it was called Girls Club. Okay. Um, that was my first experience getting out into a national park and it was Yosemite. And I had never been to a national park. Of course I had heard about them, but having that experience with a bunch of teenagers it was awesome we hopped on a bus that the girls uh club provided and made our way to a, a weekend camping trip in yosemite and it was then that i fell in love with that place pretty easy to fall in love with i've been there as well many times but if you had to try to pinpoint like what what was it that first caught you I know that can be hard to say, but... Yeah, it, we went to the valley, of course, mm -hmm. and just seeing those mountains and waterfalls. And the very first night, you know, we had a ranger come in and tell us what not to do. And of course, we did <laughs> what not the, the opposite of everything he said. Mm -hmm. And true to form, that night, a bear came into camp. Oh, and, oh what not to do with food storage. Right, yes, yes, yes. right. And... It was, it was surreal because I had only seen <laughs> bears on television, yeah. but to see one, you know, in person, it, it was scary, but I still had this desire to touch it. <laughs> I didn't do it, but I just thought it was wild. And just to have that experience in person versus watching it on TV, it was awesome. Very cool. So that was at 13. Yeah. And so, sort of early high school. Yeah. Did that, did you continue getting out through high school? and? Yeah, not so much to national parks, mm -hmm. but local and state parks we would still venture out into. Um, yeah, and, and just for whatever reason, for whatever reason, hiking just stuck with me. I guess because you could see so much you know, versus driving through a park. Mm -hmm. Walking or hiking through a park, it's just an entirely different experience. You can see, you can touch, you can smell things mm -hmm. that you can't necessarily um, do in a, a vehicle. Mm -hmm. So that stuck with me and the freedom that I felt and the serenity that surrounds you in these spaces that stuck with me. 
and all throughout my life I've always looked to have that no matter where I went I was always looking for these open spaces to just be out in and to experience um, that feeling that I can't capture in a city mm-hmm. one thing I think is interesting is often that the, these outdoor experiences are very spiritual or, or almost religious for people right. and sometimes there's people who grew up with religion sort of find there's like a, a melding of the two mm-hmm. for them to some extent so did you grow up with any sort of formal religion in your house? My mother tried to force that on us, but no. <laughs> she I, I, wasn't successful? No, absolutely not. Um, my, there are m- members of my family who are, but for me, religion just isn't my thing. I believe in God. I'm a very spiritual person. And for me, these outdoor spaces, like Avenue of the Giants, for instance, Yosemite, that's my cathedral. You know, that's where I go to find, to be grounded and to understand that there's a a greater purpose for us all. And that's what I find. That's that's my religion, if you want to define it as such. Yeah. Cool. So you stayed in California, you went to college there? Southern California, yes. Went to college. Um, Where in SoCal? Uh, <laughs> USC. Right. And um, came back home. And so you sound, did you like it down there? I'm not a Southern California girl. I'm a Northern California girl. <laughs> and there's, there's a huge difference that people don't really understand. But that's Explain, not to, do tell oh what's up. Oh my God, now you want to get me in trouble with the state of California. Uh-oh, no, don't go, go, you don't have to go too oh deep God. into it. it. There's just a different way of life between yeah. the two, yeah. um, northern and southern. Um, southern is more of the Hollywood, you know, the glam. You know, northern California is chill. Yeah. You know, we're the redwoods, we're the ocean. Yeah, yeah. Um, we are the outdoors. Yeah. Um, but I guess there's room, you know, obviously there's room for both to exist mm-hmm. in your life. But for me, I'm, I'm, I'm northern. Okay. Yeah. So you went down there for school, yes. came back as soon as you could. Oh, yes. And then what? So you said you took a job doing real estate? And yes, I start for 10 years. I worked with youth. Okay. with kids okay. through city programs through the girls club mm-hmm. um worked with youth for 10 years and then after that i got into real estate and have been in real estate for what 15 years now oh. and i enjoy what i do but it doesn't satisfy me as a human being doing that work what satisfies me is the work i do around diversity and inclusion and engaging people in the outdoors tell me a little more about the uh, work with the kids for 10 years you said that's a a chunk of of work it it is I I worked with after-school programs worked for the city of Richmond coached high school basketball at Albany High School for two or three years Um, worked for the Y so I did a lot of programs mm-hmm. engaging youth in the outdoors sports-wise. Okay. Um, and of course, there were some camping and hiking trips mm-hmm. you know, in, in, within that. But yeah, worked with young people for 10 years. So you enjoyed, the, you enjoyed working with young people? I did. I <laughs> did. But, but what, I, what I started to understand is that we weren't really providing these young people with what they needed. It was, let's just throw a basketball at them or a football at them. Um, when I would ask for educational um, material, that wasn't available. But sports equipment was at the ready all the time. And I just got tired of the message that sent. Yeah. So I thought, let me move on. Let me move away from this into working with 
older kids, and that's what got me into real estate. <laughs> older kids being adults. Absolutely. Interesting. So, and you've stuck with that, meaning real estate, despite it not really feeding your soul, because right. you've you have all this other work you do that does. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. My nine to five pays the bills. You know, the work I do outside of that feeds my spirit. It's a good balance. Yeah, you have to have you have to have that in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When did this sort of other work emerge in your life? So it was after you started with the real estate and you were done with the kids. Yeah, um, I've always had this love of the outdoors, and in my adulthood, my adult life. I started venturing off to national parks on my own. Mm. Um, and of course, Yosemite was always that place where I would make it back to, especially after I learned about the history in Yosemite with the Buffalo Soldiers. And not a lot of people know that. So after a week-long trip in Yosemite, mm -hmm. back in 2012, 2013, I can't remember now, um, I spent a week in the valley and during that week, I did not see one person that looked like me. I would see busloads of people from Japan, Germany. No one looked like me. And once I got back home, it bothered me so that I reached out to the National Park Service. And I said, you know, do you guys understand that this is a problem? And right off the bat, they said, yes, we recognize that. And we're working to fix it. So that began my journey into DEI work and the outdoors. What year was that trip? It was 2012 or 2013. Okay. And you, you referenced this history of Yosemite that included Buffalo Soldiers. What, right. Could you ex go into that a little more? Yeah, Buffalo Soldiers. Back when the Buffalo Soldiers patrolled Yosemite, they were the first rangers to do so. Yosemite was a state park at that time. It later became a national park behind John Muir and, and Roosevelt and all of that. Um, but they were the first, you know, army rangers to patrol um, Yosemite. And um, from that, there's a, a colonel named Charles Young. They were also stationed at the Presidio of San Francisco, where there are over 450 Buffalo soldiers laid to rest. And people do not know that in history. the Presidio. In the Presidio. And real quick, just to clarify for somebody who might not know, a Buffalo soldier. They were African American, rank, African American army members. Okay. Um, and they, at that time, the army was segregated, so African American rangers and white rangers could not even live in the same barracks. And did they fight separately as well? I don't. They didn't fight separately, but. When Roosevelt came to the Presidio back in the day, he requested that the Buffalo Soldiers guard him and, and show him around the city. Huh. So they were well known, um, not just because they were African-American men, mm -hmm. but because they fought like no others. Um, and they were known for that. So. That's why I believe so many are, are laid to rest at the Presidio. Okay. Um, and the history that's in Yosemite. And back, I would say three years ago now, Robert Hanna, who's a great-great-grandson of John Muir, mm -hmm. attended an event I did, which was the Buffalo Soldier Trail Retracing from the Presidio to Yosemite. And after we returned from that, Robert reached out to me, and he was so taken by that event that he had a bill introduced. He works at the Capitol in Sacramento mm -hmm. that would rename the highway into Yosemite, Buffalo Soldier Memorial Highway. So that came wow. into being last year. Really? Yeah. Which highway is that? 41. Oh a my stretch gosh, of that's 41. Pretty cool. Yeah, it is. So that's how important wow. they are to this country, but yet we don't hear about them in school yeah. we don't read about them in history books 
So that's why I do this work is to tell these stories so that their history isn't forgotten. It's relevant. Charles Young, who was the first African-American superintendent at Sequoia Kings, people don't know that. And we just had another bill passed October of last year to rename the highway into Sequoia after Charles Young. So we are working on things, but the public, aren't aware, public isn't aware of that. And that's why these stories are important, so that people understand that people of color have a history mm -hmm. in these natural spaces, but we need to tell them and continue to tell them until they become part of the story that everyone tells. When you reached out to the National Park after your week-long trip and they acknowledged the fact that this was the lack of diversity in the parks was an issue, mm -hmm. but they said they were working to address it, mm -hmm. what work were they doing? Did they tell you? Did, is there anything evident that you found them doing? I, I can say this. In the six, seven years that I've been working on this issue, I have definitely seen a change in the Park Service. Mm -hmm. I've seen more ranges of color. I've seen more programs geared around communities of color. So I'm seeing a change. When I initially reached out to the Park Service, they blew me off, other than oh. saying, we understand it's a problem. So they acknowledged it, but then that was, that it. was it. You know, um, I understood that there were some things happening, mm -hmm. but you know, that's government agency. They want to do things in their own way. Yeah. So when someone from the outside comes in and says, you should do it this way or you should do it that way, they're not trying to hear that. Yeah. So that's why I created African American National Parks event so that I could encourage communities to get out into the park so that I could see firsthand what was happening and how we're reaching these communities. Because not that they shouldn't have listened to you, but at that time you you were just a normal person. You weren't you didn't have like a title related to any of this stuff, right? Right. You were just a just a, an a user, a national park user right. who cared about something who reached right. out. See but what people don't understand is that we own these spaces. The government doesn't. Yeah. Our tax dollars pay for these parks to be up and running. Our tax dollars pay their salary. So we have a say so yeah. in what happens in these parks, but all too often we don't exercise those rights. Mm -hmm. So it was me just continuing to reach out to them and offer you know, to work with them to help bring about the change that I felt was needed. And eventually they came around. The Buffalo Soldier Trail Retracing, they partnered with me on that. Um, there have oh. been several other events that they've partnered with me on. So we have a working relationship now, but it was kind of rocky in the beginning. So tell me a little more about the, the Buffalo Social Soldier, excuse me, trail retracing. So is part of that trail on the, follows the highway? So right. that's why the highway was renamed? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And so what was the event, really? We gathered over 100 people at the Presidio of San Francisco, mm -hmm. um, which included the Park Service, Sierra Club, the MPCA, um, and the Buffalo Soldier Motorcycle Club that nice. came in from across the country. Um, there were at cool. least 50 of them. And we started at the Presidio and, you know, stayed on the trail from the Presidio to Yosemite as best we could. Driving. Driving, vehicles, yeah. 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 Because on horses, ah, we can do it. Yeah, that might have been a little long. <laughs> so yeah, we, we had buses, the Presidio provided buses, some oh. people took cars, and then we had the motorcycle um, uh, group with us. Nice. So we all... A motorcade. <laughs> absolutely. We, we, we traveled the route, stopped in Los Baños, um, where the Buffalo Soldiers I'm not sure how to explain it, but there's a history of the Buffalo Soldiers in Los Banos. Okay. So we stopped there, had mm -hmm. lunch, had you know presentations on on who the Buffalo Soldiers were, mm -hmm. and proceeded on to Yosemite. Um, spent the night there. Following morning, Ranger Shelton Johnson, who speaks about the Buffalo Soldiers, came and, and gave a presentation. And then we packed up and headed back to the Presidio the following day. Very cool. Yeah. 
So Shelton was in the video last right. night at the event you gave, which was about why uh, environmental sustainability depends on diversity. Right. So I think in the video it said he, I don't know if this was current, but he was w one of only two Shelton rangers is, of color. Right. Is that current? He is, <clears throat> yes. He is one of two African-American rangers in the park. He may have switched titles or positions recently, but he is one of two African-Americans and there are thousands of NPS employees that work in Yosemite. So was the Buffalo Soldier retracing event part of the African-American National Park experience? Right, it was part of African-American National Parks event. Okay. Um, and I, I do that every June where I put out a call on social media mm -hmm. to have communities across the country to find a local national park site and to get out, talk with a ranger, hike, camp, do whatever, and then just post to social media images, images of them being out in the parks. Okay. So that's what this project is. It's right. typically once a year? Once a year, every okay. June, yeah. And so it's not, and you do... A, an event where you're at and but then you also put it out to people across the country right okay so we'll we'll do something here in the bay area that's at a local national park site mm -hmm. and we encourage others across the country to do the same very cool yeah so the other thing you are famous for is the yeah. <laughs> outdoor ceo pledge yeah tell me about that what what is that yeah the outdoor ceo diversity pledge oh, came into being January, February of 2018. I reached out to Chris Perkins, who's a student at Yale right now, and he talks and writes about issues of diversity and inclusion. And I reached out and I said, hey Chris, would you be interested in working on a project with me um, called the CEO Diversity Pledge? And he said yes right away. So, but how do you you just reached out to this student? Is this well? I know him, but oh, you know over him. social media because okay. this this must be a pretty pretty sharp young person. He Chris is a Chris is a pretty good guy. Chris is a good guy. Um, but those of us who do this work of DEI, for the most part, we know of one another because of social media. Mm -hmm. A lot of us have never met in person. I've never met Chris in person. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully that will be changing with the upcoming OR show. Okay. But yeah, I, I had read some of his articles and I, I thought he would be a good match to help put this article, this pledge together. Um, he said, yeah, right away. And we got to writing and reaching out to brands to make them aware of what we were doing. Reached out to Joe Flannery at Marmot, who's the GM there. Made him aware of what I was doing and he stepped up and was like, let me help, let me help you guys work it out. Cool. And Marmot was the first brand to sign on. So what, what was the idea, where did it come from? Exactly. Just being, just not seeing brands, outdoor brands, whomever, you know, um, Columbia, um, Patagonia, all these outdoor brands who have the ability to affect this work of DEI and I wasn't seeing it. You know, I take to social media and I wouldn't see images of people that look like me. And that's a problem. Because you know people who look like you are out there. Doing Absolutely. It. And people want to have this or put this impression out there that we're not there, that this is brand new to us, but it isn't. We've always been in these spaces. The reason it feels brand new is because you don't see us represented in marketing campaigns and such. So I thought it important that we started seeing that. And that was the purpose behind the pledge, was to make sure that these brands um, had a guideline in regards to how to do DEI work. And I think we're at 36 brands now that have committed to the pledge. Awesome. Yeah. And you think the reason that you weren't seeing people who looked like you represented, mm -hmm. I mean, is that just straight up racism? Is that that 
these companies don't see a value, like there's going to be enough potential profit to make off right. I don't, communities I don't, of color? I mean, what's yeah. the... I don't see it as racism at all. It, it, it's, it's something that over time people have overlooked. They continue to use images that they've always used, and those images have worked for them. The problem with that is that their customer base is changing. It's shifting. It's shifting into a demographic that this country has never seen before. And that is that people of color will be the new demographic. We are currently coming into being that. And brands need to recognize that and, and change with that, with that shift. Otherwise, brands such as Native Outdoors and Brown Girls Climb, we're going to start creating our own brands and cater to one another. And some of these brands that are in existence today won't be around in 15 years because they didn't change quick enough. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to get people to understand is that this shift that we are trying to help you make benefits you in the long run. We are your new customer base. But furthermore, and this is what you were talking about last night, is that it's your opinion that the environment is very much on the line. Absolutely. And that in order to even have and protect the spaces that we like to go out and enjoy, right. because people of color are going to be the new majority, right. we need to engage those people so that they then care about and want to protect outdoors. Right. And that is the foundation of this work I do. People think it's just because I, oh, she just wants to see black and brown people. No. That's that's a means to an end for me. When we connect people or reconnect people with the land, they develop a relationship with these spaces and have a desire to protect them. And that's what we need right now. We need more people fighting for the protection of our environment. And right now, the people that are missing from that work and, and the conversation are people of color. So we need to work as a collective, be it brands, agencies, companies, to help re-engage these communities so that in 15 to 20 years, when we are the number one demographic, we'll have just as many, if not more, people fighting to protect these spaces. I don't want to focus on this topic, of course, but uh, something recently happened that got a bunch of press. And that was that a, another group, Camber Outdoors, Yes. they created something strikingly similar to your Outdoor CEO Diversity Pledge. Correct. So again, I, as I said, don't want to focus on this too much or spend too much time, as I'm sure you've been talking a lot about this recently. But if you would indulge us and just sort of tell us what happened there. Sure. Back in the early part of 2018, I reached out to OIA, which is the Outdoor Industry Association. And I wanted to pull together CEOs of outdoor brands for a meeting at the upcoming Outdoor Retailer Show. So I thought OIA would be the perfect partner to make this happen. So when I reached out to Amy Roberts, who's the ED, and I, I totally respect her response to me was that I like the idea, but Teresa, I know nothing about DEI, diversity and inclusion. And I respect that. She said, would you mind if I brought in Camber Outdoors? And that's how Camber came into the conversation. So there were several conversations on the gathering, um, doing a blog and the pledge. And Camber at that time... Speaking about your pledge. My pledge. Yes. Right. The CEO Diversity Pledge. Yes. And at that time, Camber wanted no parts of that. They didn't feel their members were ready to address racial diversity, which is what my pledge addresses. Camber is an organization that addresses women's issues in the outdoors. Specifically women's. Women. Okay. Right. So they're and not talking about people of color, no, talking about women. No, it, it, it's, a, it's a women's organization from its inception. Mm -hmm. That's what it's been. 
And I respect that because that work too is needed. But it wasn't addressing racial diversity. So if you have an organization that claims to address diversity only because they represent women and all those women are white, that's not progress. So I asked at that time, would Camber be willing to um, change their pledge around to include racial diversity. And at that time, I was told no. So I decided to move on from that. Um, but what people don't understand is that I was well aware of what Camber's intentions were in 2018 to broaden their women's pledge. I knew that. What I was not aware of is that they were changing the name of the pledge entirely. What was the initial name? It was just Women's Pledge, something like that. I'm not real certain. But in February of this year, when they announced the Outdoor CEO Equity Pledge, that caught me off guard. One, because it was so close to the title of our pledge. And two... I wasn't aware that they were going to make this big hoopla about it. Because that was part of the big issue, right? They said it's right, the first it's of its the kind. Right, it's the first of its kind. I, I wasn't aware of that. Had I wanted to make this a big deal, I would have made the announcement last year when I knew they were looking to you know, restructure their women's pledge, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. So when it came out this year, people were upset because the first of its kind language and a name that was so close to mine, to our pledge. And because your pledge includes that group. You're trying to fight right, for everyone. Right. And they're sort at, of trying to fight for a smaller... Right. If you look at our pledge, our pledge includes Camber Outdoors. Our pledge states that we, we honor what Camber Outdoors has done. In our pledge, we mention that. But for whatever reason, Camber decided to take on something that they were ill-prepared to take on, obviously, which is why all the backlash came. So basically everyone felt like they had disrespected you, had obviously didn't give you due credit, and right. basically copied or did something strikingly similar and then said it was the first of its kind Right. And all this. They tried to lay claim to something that... Groundwork you had done. Not just me. A <laughs> yeah. lot of people yeah. in this industry were already doing. Mm -hmm. They just tried to take it and make it theirs. And it was disrespectful to a lot of us. A lot of the affinity groups that are out here doing this work, it was offensive to them. Because yet again, history is repeating itself. And... and People just weren't having it. Which is basically white folks not recognizing that... Or taking something that didn't belong to them, claiming it as their own, yeah. and profiting from it. Yeah. So there was enough backlash that the CEO of Camber... Stepped down. Stepped down. Deanna? Deanna? Right. Yes. She stepped down after several calls for her to do so. Um... I personally did not make that call publicly. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people were, that were just angry. I'm sure plenty, yeah, you didn't have to say much. I'm sure plenty of people were ready to say it for you. It, it, it just angered people because we are doing this work day in and day out. And there are not enough companies, organizations, and agencies acknowledging the work we do. So for a majority white organization to take the stage at OR, of all places, and make the claims that they did, it just struck a chord with people, and, and we did what we know best, take to social media and call them out on it. So are you, how do you feel about it now, about the, the outcome at this point? Um, Camber did what they had to do in regards to Deanne leaving. I have been in touch with Camber since, and we're talking to see how we can mend what's been broken um, and, and how we can 
bring together an industry that seems to be splintering off right now. So I'm working with them and others to try and, and fix it. Sorry, what do you mean by splintering off? People have their own opinions of what, we sh what course we should take because of this Camber incident. Um, it, it's, it's just What's the, the best right course now. moving ahead with DEI in the outdoor industry? Honestly, I think OIA needs to step up, and that's the Outdoor, Indus outdoor Industry Association. They need to step up at this point, and I'm not saying they need to fix it because they can't fix it. It's going to take all of us. But they just need it. a what? They Put need to in. make a statement of, about the importance of so this work. So people talk more about it, so it's on their minds, so it's a thing. Not just talk, because we've been talking uh -huh. for years. Yeah. But under the guise of OIA, that's where all the brands gather. Every brand gathers under this, under the uh, umbrella of OIA. At the you know, summer OR show, the winter OR show, they need to make diversity, equity, and inclusion part of these gatherings. They need to make statements about how important it is. Mm -hmm. They need to reach out to these affinity groups that are doing this work and offer to work with us. We need to come together as a collective to fix this. And I think OIA has the means to do that. They have the means to bring us together. So deliberate action. Absolutely. So last night at the event, which was packed. Yeah. That was good to see you, the Portland Audubon Society. Right. You said one of one of the things you think, or one of the misconceptions that people have about you is that you are militant. Mm -hmm. What did that mean exactly? What does militant mean to you, and why are you not militant? I. Um, I know that's a loaded word. I wasn't trying to. No, no. Just that, that it came. You mentioned it last night. So. No, you know, people have a perception about those of us who do this work around DEI, especially communities of color that do this work. Um, I, I don't see myself as militant. I am very much outspoken when it comes to this because again, what matters most to me are these outdoor spaces and I'm willing to do whatever I have to do to protect them. I don't think enough, I don't think enough people are doing that or are willing to do that much. Um, so I'm willing to have conversations with people. I'm willing to call people out publicly. Whatever it takes for me to move the needle in this work, I'm willing to do because that's how important these spaces are for me. So I think people have a perception that, you know, I'm loud and I'm outspoken and, you know, I, I, I just care about this issue because black people aren't well represented. And that's not the case at all. You know, if, if I'm part of a group and we're out, I'm the one that's quiet. I'm not the one that's, you know, loud and whatnot. I'm loud about this. Mm -hmm. I'm loud about it because that's what's missing. You know, we have a lot of people doing this work and they choose to do things in their own way, a quieter way. That doesn't work for me. I need to see movement. I need to see action by people like Audubon, Sierra Club, the Wilderness Society. I need to see public messages that these organizations put out on the importance of this work. And I guess that's where people get the image of me or the impression of me from. I mean, you're just being real about it, of course. Of course. Like you said last night. Your, your opening line was, this is going to be It's a hard conversation, yes. It is. And it's not, because ultimately what this conversation comes down to is race. And this country isn't comfortable with having that what conversation. What this conversation comes down to is right. race. Yeah. When you look at the pledge, it's a racial diversity pledge. So what that conversation is, is race. What the conversation was that we had last night was about race. And all too often, people aren't comfortable with that conversation. I'm comfortable with it because I have it day in and day out. Um, but I think that's what we need to come to grips with, is that in a country that has a history of not treating people of color well, having people of color to now come to them 
and demand that they help fix this doesn't sit too well with people. And I'm okay with that. But as long as I know I'm coming in conversation with you in a respectful way, how you take that is on you. It's not on me. So you said you uh, had been on the East Coast for a short time in your life? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, your vibe is sort of East Coasty, though. Oh my God! Because no. that, the bluntness, though, it's good, right? It's uh, but like I feel like that is an East Coast sort of vibe. It's like you don't mince your words. It's like that's this is a hard conversation. This is it. You know, Period. deal with it. It is. It is a hard conversation. You were saying you didn't like the East Coast. I, it's funny. I am. <laughs> I'm a California girl. <laughs> you know, I lived on the East Coast for two years, but I think. Who and how I am has a lot to do with my father and what he instilled in me to never look down on anyone and never let anyone who has placed themselves on a pedestal make you feel inferior to them. I, I, you can't make, you cannot have a conversation with me or work with me in a way that you feel you are above me. That doesn't fly with me. I'm not afraid to have a conversation with anyone because I'm going to come at you with respect. And how that conversation ends depends on, again, your perception and how open and honest you can be with me. Thank you for all the work you're doing. Um, So you have a nine-to-five job. Yes. (laughs) And yet you're doing all this other stuff. How do you make it happen? How do you find the time? You find time for what's important, you know? So I'm, I'm taking off days when I'm quote unquote sick mm-hmm. and, and, and I'm traveling. I'm, I'm, I'm taking vacation time and I'm making it happen. I'm waiting for an organization or an agency out there to come to me and say, Teresa, look, let's create a position for you where you can do this work. Because I know that position doesn't exist right now. I need the flexibility to do this, to travel. Um, so you to travel be, often with this stuff? Yeah. I, like I, you are now, up in Portland? Right, <laughs> right. I, I travel a lot, but not as much as requested because I do have a nine-to-five. Mm-hmm. But, you know, once that position is created, and I know there's a brave soul out there that will create it eventually, I'll be able to do it, you know, full-time. Very cool. You've been deliberate, obviously, in making these things happen, fitting them in, making it all fit, this balance of work and life and the things you're passionate about. So one of the questions we always ask our guests is, because this show aims to be inspiring, because we're highlighting inspiring people who are doing amazing things, what advice would you give to, you know, somebody who's trying to find meaningful work, a meaningful path or career, or maybe, you know, really cares about these sorts of issues and Mm -hmm. wants to take action, like what, so specific action towards these types of things, but also in general, like what's the life advice that would come from Teresa Baker? Yeah, you know, it wasn't until I was into into my 40s that I discovered what my passion in life is. And it's the outdoors. Although I've always spent time out there, it was always second to whatever else I was doing. But now it's first, and I understand that as being my passion. So the people who are rushing to determine what their passion is, don't rush it. It will come to you in time. And, and whatever that passion is, chase it down. Don't allow obstacles to get in your way. Don't allow naysayers to say that's not the path you should take. You should, you should take the safer path. Take the path that feeds your soul. So once you find it, then go for it. Chase it, it down. Yeah. Chase it down. Very cool. And more specifically, especially for a white person, for example, <laughs> and in Portland, a place that is lacking in diversity, although I think that is hopefully getting better, changing yeah. a little bit. How can we best be allies to the cause, and not only allies, but 
how can we affect things for the better? Right. Speak up. I know up. it's not just an easy, easy thing it's to... It's not an easy fix for anyone. Yeah. <clears throat> but what I say to everyone, if you are part of an outdoor organization, agency, or brand, if you work for such an agency, company, or brand, speak up. Call them out. Talk to them. Tell them how important this work is to you and how you would like for them to take it on as well. Change comes from within. And I was in a meeting yesterday with Audubon's uh, society, and some of the employees were talking about that exact thing, how they are working towards this type of change by encouraging Audubon you know, to get in the fight. And I encourage Audubon to do it too. There's a pledge they can take, <laughs> you know? Wilderness Society, Sierra Club, Columbia, Patagonia, all these brands, reach out to them. Make them aware of your frustrations, mm -hmm. if you're frustrated, and, and, and ask them to get into the fight. Apply the pressure. You're their customer. Your word should matter. And they should act accordingly. So you, are you optimistic about the future? Do you feel like things are headed in the right direction? Absolutely I am. Because of people like um, Mercy, who was at, on the panel yesterday, uh, Latino Outdoors, um, Native Outdoors, all these affinity groups that are forming. I have hope because they're not being quiet about it. You know, they're loud and, and, and they're making demands and that's what we need to do is make demands because we've asked for far too long and that change isn't coming quick enough. The demographic shift is coming quicker than the change that's needed to keep up with it. So yeah, I'm absolutely hopeful for the future um, and I have to be because of what we stand to lose if we don't fight harder. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Really, really appreciate it. And for being up here in Portland and for all the work you're doing and for the presentation last night, it's been very impactful. Cool. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll hope to talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye. This wraps up another edition of the Get After It PDX podcast. For more information about today's guest, including social media links, please check out the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening. Now it's your turn to get out there and get after it.